I do also work at the Department for International Trade and have an insight into government. And the more I do, I'll be honest, the more I realize that the true change is going to come from grassroots in the sense of, you know, in this case, business uh, and investors. Saturday, the 26th of March, witnessed Earth Hour. And as much as there is a huge amount going on in the world, it is important we don't lose sight of the climate crisis we're all facing. Today's show is a reflection of that. We've got three interviews. Olivia Saboni, the CEO and co-founder of Tribe, is joining us to talk all about enabling investment into the sector before we have two examples of tech being applied to help enable new solutions. We've got Lauren Schmidt from Decibel, D-C-B-E-L, and Anne-Sophie Gard from the ReC Project. This is Tech Talks, your weekly technology podcast hosted by myself, David Savage, brought to you by the Harvey Nash Group. Saturday was Earth Hour, and to join me on a pod celebrating that is uh, Amber. I have to say, I'll, I'll be perfectly honest, in amongst all the other shit, quite frankly, going on in the world, it almost passed me by that it was Earth Hour. Yeah, it still passed me by. What, what is that? Is it just when the clocks go back? No, no. Earth Hour is um, it's supposed to be a moment where everyone turns electrics off for an hour, I think. Oh, Watch right, me be okay. explaining this entirely wrong. Oh, well, I definitely didn't switch any of my electrics off and I completely missed that. Uh, so Earth Hour is a wor- worldwide movement organised by the World Wildlife Fund. The event is held annually, encouraging individuals, communities and businesses to turn off non-essential electric lights for one hour from 10 30 to 9 30 p.m last saturday of in the last saturday of march as a commitment um uh, symbol sorry of commitment to the planet so that's what it is oh did did you do it no no oh i've got to be perfectly honest i totally forgot and the whole point about today's podcast is to try and get it back on the agenda because with ukraine and everything else i was actually in london on Saturday, um, oh, not to march, go to the Ukraine there? march. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't know about the march until we were there and went. Hang on a minute. There's a hell of a lot of people with Ukrainian flags. Mm. But obviously, there's there's everything going on there. I mean, the, the the news just seems to be. You know, if it's not coronavirus, it's Ukraine. It's and climate crisis is this thing that is still going on in the background, not getting solved. The only kind of real thing probably linking it to people's consciousness right now is reliance on fossil fuels um, from, from Russian gas yeah. and and energy prices, yeah, which funnily enough is something that we touch on in one of the interviews. Mm-hmm. That's all sort of very current, isn't it? And I think that's probably where people, like say, have more of a conversation because it obviously kind of, it affects them. Like it actually mm. sort of like impacts their sort of day to day and rather than... I suppose when it like say so when it's going on in the background, they don't see it as like their issue. Sadly, um, yeah, as much as it obviously yeah. is for all of us. But prior to the pandemic, Greta Thunberg and and the climate crisis was absolutely top of the agenda, and it just seems to have fallen away. And so, you know, highlighted by our appalling ignorance, it's something that we felt we needed to uh, throw a bit of focus back on. So that's what we've got. We've got three interviews, two super interesting tech enabled. Um, innovations to try and help tackle climate crisis and then one all about the financing of sustainable projects so that's what's coming up 
Uh, we'll hand over to the first interview, which is going to be with Laurent Schmidt, which means taking a trip over to Paris. He is from Decibel, or Decibel, D-C-B-E-L, Head of Utilities and European Developments. So I'm talking now to uh, Laurent uh, Schmidt, uh, who is joining us from Paris. Uh, Laurent, you are Head of Utilities and European Developments for Decibel. How are you? I'm fine. Thanks a lot for the interview. And that's the, that's Decibel, D-C-B-E-L, if anyone's unsure. Right. Um, look, as I said, thanks for joining us. Um, what is Decibel? Who are you and, and what, what, what do you do? So we are a new uh, startup company and we are preparing the launch of a new product into the home environment and it is called an home energy station. So it's kind of a power station uh, to feed your house and basically helps you to uh, minimize the, co- the cost of, you, of your electricity, uh, make use of your solar panels and also integrate heat pumps and electrical vehicle all together in your home environment. So it is, we think, an essential tool in the current context of the energy crisis and, um, and the need to, uh, uh, for every citizen uh, to take uh, control over its, her or his uh, energy strategy. So a couple of questions, I suppose, to, to start with. Um, you mentioned there solar. Um, is the, the electricity, your home, your home power station, effectively solar is the main source of that electricity? Yes, solar is the main source when sun is available. So that does not mean that we, the home is getting disconnected from the grid. That means mm-hmm. that the, um, the power station may make best use of solar PV when it is available, but also best use of the electricity coming from the power system, from the grid, in terms of uh, minimizing the cost and making use of electricity when the cost is, is low. Um. And I suppose the other question is, how much might this cost for someone? Because as, as soon as we start talking about these things, I immediately think of electric vehicles, where an electric car is, the upfront cost is quite expensive, but then running a, an electric car over the course of 10 years turns out to be far less expensive than a fossil fuel car. But having the, the cash up front to get one can sometimes be a bit prohibitive. So how are you making the economics work for, say, someone like myself who, you know, has a home currently currently hooked up to the grid. Um, is it going to be possible uh, without breaking the bank to, to get it installed? So yes, it is possible to uh, to get it installed. Uh, it usually comes together with your photovoltaics, and basically, you there is not much interest into uh, looking at it in terms of price only as the uh, sole home energy station product. It comes as a package together with your uh, photovoltaics, uh, storage uh, equipment uh, for your for the periods when the um, uh, solar PV is low, as well as for uh, for an, uh, a connector with your electrical vehicle. So the future in the future you'll be able to use your electrical vehicle as a storage unit into your home. So that is really the uh, this integrated integrated package. What I can already tell you is in the current energy prices and with the crisis you return your investment in less than four years. And uh, and it is uh, the particularity of the box, it allows the full integration of all these devices together. So it is basically uh, more competitive than the solution which are existing on the market. So get, to get away from the consumer angle right? and, and to talk a little bit more about the current energy crisis, obviously with, with what's going on um, in Ukraine, 
Um, there's been a lot of talk about countries like Germany um, having an over-reliance on, on gas and fossil fuels and that, that some countries have been slow. Well, most, most countries, unfortunately, have been slow to move away from dependency on fossil fuels. Is I've, I've also seen a fair amount about the, the kind of the idea of distributed energy grids and um, interconnectivity between houses and homes to, to basically um, takes, take the strain off the, the traditional um, grid that we have existing. Is that, is that what we've got envisaged here? Is it that you know, my, uh, someone, someone 200 miles away from me on the same system could be generating electricity that they may not need that can be fed back into the grids to help the whole thing become more efficient? Yes, that's the uh, that's the idea behind. So what in the current crisis where we are in, which I remind you is a double deep crisis. The first deep was the uh, the COVID, uh, post-COVID situation, which has uh, created, I would say, um, a high um, a need for uh, for gas on, on a worldwide uh, basis. And then we had the uh, second effect of the Ukraine. And what Basically, in a nutshell, it has turned the uh, renewable electricity and solar PV, solar photovoltaics, as a very economical solution to feed your home. So basically, it is now uh, more economical to uh, to feed your home with uh, photovoltaics and storage than uh, uh, basically consume the electrons uh, which are delivered from the uh, power plants uh, supplying into the grid. And, and what our equipment is aiming at is to... Uh, on one side, maximizing the usage of your own local electricity, but also supporting the grids into uh, into periods uh, where uh, there are lack of uh, uh, electricity, uh, as an example, or potentially uh, share electricity with other peers uh, into your community. So, so it is really a change of uh, approach where we see the power system uh, being controlled bottom up, if I may say so, and where this uh, home energy station is allowing every consumer to interact in in a smart way uh, with the grid and with the energy system. So you say there that it's kind of a bottom-up approach. Um, one of the big the big challenges with with all of these solutions tends to be infrastructure and getting the infrastructure in place. Is that a challenge here? I mean, what what appetite is there at the moment when you're talking to um, to governments? Beyond rhetoric, they're all speaking a very good game, but is, is there action? Can you see that there being movement at the minute to, to try and help make sure the infrastructure is in place to, to make integrations like this work? Yeah, that's that's a very interesting question, what you are raising. I think the, the, good, uh, the good news is that we can already use it into the current regulatory environments in the sense that you can already install solar PV into your home. You can already charge uh, your electrical vehicle into your home environment behind your meter and you can already install uh, storage into your home. So there is a first level of optimization, which is uh, behind the meter, uh, which can be uh, run and managed by this uh, station. The next step, as what you say, will be to also um, uh, kind of allow uh, customers to resell their flexibility. So what these consumers are going to do is when they have excess of power, they will be interested in to monetize this excess of power, what I refer as flexibility. And that's where there will be a, a further regulatory change needed. I think the, uh, the, UK, uh, the UK regulator of GEM is, is looking at this uh, very closely. And so that these are going to be other, other services which will be able to be developed out of our home energy station. But what I want to be clear is today, it is uh, feasible to install this into your home 
we don't need any specific uh, requirement on the infrastructure side and the return on investment in the current energy price is extremely good uh, because of the uh, uh, the cost of uh, consuming your own uh, uh, photovoltaics. You are launching in California first, then the UK, and then France. Why California first? Is it to do with the regulatory environment? Is it is it is it slightly easier to to get this off the ground there first? Uh, yeah, you. I think you you're right. California is very interesting from the regulation point of view, uh, from the fact that it is really forward looking when it comes to a new electrical transportation, electrical vehicle. It is also uh, basically, um, I would say, let's be, let's be honest, a sunny territory. So, so the economics of uh, solar photovoltaics are are very good there. Mm-hmm. Then the question is why the next is uh, UK in the Europe, and uh, here, what is very interesting in the UK uh, is that it is definitely a market where we see electrical vehicle developing uh, very rapidly now. Uh, we see also some uh, some boom around uh, photovoltaics, and and the electricity price in the UK are high because UK is uh, today largely dependent on gas uh, in periods when there is uh, low renewable into the grid. And I must say as well, your uh, regulatory environment as what exists today already allows to um, uh, to manage this kind of smart interface into the uh, home environment. So, so we think it mm-hmm. is uh, really an ideal situation in Europe to launch our product, but we really want to become a very quickly a European-wide uh, startup. The, the cost of living in the UK right now is is under the microscope. A lot of households are fee- feeling the squeeze and, and utilities and energy prices are very much at the heart of that. I mean, how quickly you, you said there's there, there, there that you've seen um, an acceleration of, of electric vehicles in the UK. How long do you think realistically this might take to roll out in the UK market and for people to be able to to implement it and take advantage of some of the benefits? So we we uh, we plan to uh, we think it will be a, a rather rapid adoption because it will simply uh, follow the paths of um, uh, solar photovoltaics into home and electrical vehicle mm-hmm. introduction and and again the cost of fuel whether for oil and gas is is so high right now that the dynamics uh, on on the um, on the economics are are very good uh, what we uh, what we believe is actually the um, uh, as soon as we are going to launch the product, uh, we, we are going to, and we see that we already have uh, quite uh, some interesting level of reservation onto our website. It's going to be uh, quickly adopted because we simply are kind of plug and play into this environment. We simplify a lot the installation required uh, for uh, photovoltaics or for uh, basically smart charging of your electrical vehicle. And, and we think it's going to be an accelerator into uh, into these environments. So we hope to to be able to sell several uh, thousands uh, of these units uh, within uh, Q1 next year. And look, a lot a lot of nations are talking about kind of net zero targets, cutting emissions, percentage points by you know X year. What kind of a difference can can this make? You know, if 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 we saw a, a rapid adoption, I I don't really know off the top of my head to what extent household use of electricity accounts for the carbon footprint of the country of a country like the UK. I mean, how how far along the path towards net zero can this get us? 
Yeah, it's, it's a very good question. Uh, what, what we've uh, looked uh, very closely into the latest um, uh, report of IPCC is that basically, if we want to be uh, carbon neutral in a developed economy like ours, we need to uh, bring, um, I would say, citizen carbon footprint, I would say household carbon footprints uh, below two ton uh, or three to, two to three ton per year per home. Uh, while if you are looking, I would say, an average home today, whether it's uh, in particular in the um, in, in the UK, is in the range, I would say, of 10 tons. Uh, I would talk about a home together with the elect with the car, which is um, a fuel, a normal uh, a fuel car, and uh, and and also a, a home which is heated by uh, uh, by a gas boiler. If we if we would switch this, I would say, to a home with a heat pump, with an electrical vehicle, and with solar PV on the roof, you would reach immediately into the home uh, the targets of two to three ton, which is what we need to reach uh, for uh, 2050. So. So we really think it is on one side economically viable, but it's also transformational uh, from a, from a carbon footprint and 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 basically putting the citizens at the center of of this uh, journey to, uh, uh, to 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 reach net zero objective by 2050. Look, I, I think it's amazing. I think it sounds really promising and a, and a great step. So I, I hope that launch in California goes well. And Laurent, thank you very much for taking the time at the end of a week. Uh, to record this podcast with me. Thank you, David. Right, so I put this at the top because we mentioned in the intro about um, energy prices and the cost of mm -hmm. fuel. I mean, why if we get away from kind of the home, everyone, even I, who have not been driving for very long at all, has noticed that the cost of fuel has gone up. Only only Rishi Sunak seems to not really realise how much the cost of fuel is. Um, so it's, it's, this is something that people are kind of very familiar with right now. Oh, yeah, massively. And I, I think, as you say, even if you're not a driver, like you just can't avoid the fact that it's gone up like a, a just a ridiculous amount, hasn't it? Oh, yeah. Gas and electric at homes. Yeah, yeah. I think it's like something ridiculous, like 54 percent or something I got quoted the other day. Or I don't know if yeah. that's just kind of across the board. But no, I think that sounds about right. I think it had gone from like the average household from like two grand to three grand or something. Yeah, or it's insane. Else. It's just insane. I mean, you just think how many people were struggling to like pay their gas and electricity bills anyway when it was on like the prices they were on before. And then obviously with this kind of like significant jump, how many people are just not going to be able to pay that? Um, I mean, yeah. it's going to be a struggle for everybody, but I mean, some people just genuinely just, you know, won't be able to, to find the money to kind of to pay those bills. And it's, yeah. what do you do in that situation? Like it's, yeah, I mean, it's just, I think he described it. Well, I know obviously the news is describing it as well as like an energy crisis and that's what it is. It's, I've been, the figures are just the highest they've been in. I can't remember how many years they said on the news the other day, mm. but like just crazy amount of years. But in that context, the idea that you could turn your house into your own private power station is really fascinating, like genuinely fascinating. You know, I've moved into a new build estate in the last year and there is a house, uh, I don't know, probably 250 yards around the corner same same type of style as, of house as ours, red brick roof, and they've stuck black solar panels all over it. And when they went up, my wife and I kind of went, it's a little bit ugly. Mm, mm. Probably would have put it on the back rather than the front. But then you kind of think about prices. like they, 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 I think they put them on like nine months ago. And now you're looking at energy prices and you're kind of hearing about solutions like Lauren is, is, is describing and you're going, well, who really cares if it's ugly? Yeah, that's such a good point.
And also, I just think with things like that, like, I think you, people will naturally ask the question like you did about like, what's the upfront cost? But then obviously you have to look over the sort of the, the value that it kind of you get over the sort of the amount of years that you have it. And mm. I think so many people will be inquiring into it now, just asking these questions and thinking about it as an option. And this is like the perfect time for him to kind of pitch this solution because it's just like a it's a it's just a solution to a growing issue, really, isn't it? So he's kind of yeah. like tapped into it at a very very good time, and it could save a lot of people, um, well, a lot of money in the long run, basically. And the idea that it can take strain off the existing grid. Is super interesting. Mm. One thing that I found, re- I didn't, I didn't quiz or make a joke about it whilst I was interviewing him, but it did cross my mind when he talks about the fact that you could sell energy back into the grid. It's like probably benefits people in the southeast where there's a bit more sunshine. <laughs> That's really clever, actually. Do you know what? I didn't even, I maybe didn't even pick up on that on the interview, but that's really clever. It does kind of make you wonder if there's like a premium on living in places with more sunlight hours out on average in a year yeah and I think that's why people are always put off as well because it is so and it sounds really stupid but it is so reliant on the sun isn't it that so many people are like in the UK like if you lived over in Spain for example or I don't know anywhere that's just you know incredibly hot it makes sense to do it because you just know you're going to have pretty much good weather for like for the majority of the year whereas Mm. in the UK it's so hit and miss isn't it like some years we can get an absolute glorious summer and then obviously these things make complete sense. Then other years it's just like, you just don't know. It's it's just so hard to read. So I think that's why, again, people might be a bit reluctant to do these things. Although now, with everything else that's going on in the world, any incentive that can get people to switch off fossil fuels mm. uh, and also one that, let's face it, the fossil fuel crisis to most people feels very distant. I look out my window right now, I can see green open space, trees. It kind of, you know, I'm in the house. I've got insulation. I'm typical of 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 living in a Western, um, you know, well kind of developed economy with all of the benefits that brings. And it feels like it's a million miles away. But then when it hits people's back pockets is when they're probably, unfortunately, as much as they should be motivated by concern for the planet and what it's doing beyond what we can see mm. hitting your back pocket and, and 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 your wallet is what's going to probably motivate people to make change yeah most definitely and i think as selfish as it sounds it kind of goes back to that thing like you've just said there and i think i said at the beginning obviously if it's not kind of directly impacting you mm. you sadly do you you do kind of overlook these things and then obviously yep. suddenly, like you said if it impacts you and you know your bills are going up and you're having to kind of scrimp and save and, and make sacrifices elsewhere then of course you'll start to take a bit more of an interest won't you really um yeah. as much as sort of us maybe don't want to admit that like that is you know that is the case really isn't it yeah absolutely we've got a lot to get through today so we're going to switch attention to our second interview the second uh use of technology as an innovation um and we're going to head to denmark to copenhagen uh this time for an interview with Anne sophie uh the general manager of the rec project so I'm chatting to Anne-Sophie, uh, who's joining us from Copenhagen. How are you today? I am great, thank you. How are you? Yes, I'm very well, thank you. Uh, and Anne-Sophie, we're talking to you uh, because you are the general manager of ReC Project. Um, who are ReC? 
Well, Breezy Project, we are a fairly young company, uh, originating here from, from, from Copenhagen, Denmark, but having our main uh, operations in Indonesia, in Jakarta, where we uh, collect plastic from oceans and rivers. And the way that we work and finance the work that we do is that we are collecting plastic on behalf of other companies around the world, companies who would like to do uh, an documented impact, positive impact for our environment, and of course want to share that with their customers. So we pretty much collect plastic on, on their behalf. And the way that we work more practically is that we engage the local community in Jakarta, Indonesia, in this plastic collection, uh, meaning that we simply pay them for collecting the plastic in oceans and rivers. These are people who come uh, primarily from, from quite poor backgrounds and people who are working and living close to uh, coastal areas. Um, mm -hmm. So what we ask them is simply like go out in your boat and, and collect plastic the same way as you would go about fishing, for example. And then we pay them for, for this amount of plastic that they collect. How did you get involved in Resea projects? Because as I said, you're your general manager. Um, looking at your LinkedIn, I think you started um, uh, in a business development capacity. Um, looking at your education, it's it's not like you did um, tech or bioscience or or environmentalism. So it would seem to be something that you've come to, um, I suppose, as much by by chance. But that might be wrong. It would be great to find out from you why you're there, what it is about the business that makes you go, "Yeah, this is for me." This is me. Well, I've um, uh, I've had I've had a background working in the plastic industry um, mm -hmm. and, and getting to know a bit about, uh, of course, the, the the huge challenges that we face in terms of, of how plastic is uh, affecting our climate and our planet. And through that, I I got the chance to to become one of the one of the starters of a VC project. And I think what tricked me back then and what is still sort of my driver today is that um, I have a very sort of um, practical and kind of get to work approach to, to dealing with things that are so immense as the climate change. I, I just I really have this idea that we can make this work, but we probably have to really start in a very specific way and 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 find a uh, and, and and kind of start from the bottom and then work your way into the issue yeah. um and that has been sort of the that has been sort of the 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 way that we have worked in VC project from the beginning meaning that we care a lot about making the work that we do uh transparent and traceable which uh and and also explaining to our customers that what we're trying to do is quite complicated uh, and we do not have the, 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 one, uh, the one solution that will fix everything in the world, but that we have taken on this part of the, of the problem and we are handling it in this way and we're showing it, showing it and documenting it in a way. So that's how I like to work and, and that has kind of affected the way that we do things in Rishi Project. So let's, let's kind of get into the detail, I suppose, because yeah, there you said it's quite complicated and forgive me but part of me wonders why is it quite complicated like a few years ago i was lucky enough to have a holiday in the maldives pristine house reef stunning place kind of vibrant colors and whatever else and then there was a storm i think on the second last night that we were there woke up in the morning and there was plastic everywhere 
And it was a real shock because you read about plastic in the oceans and you see yeah. images, but you quite often go to these places as a tourist and you don't really see the problem. And to me, myself and my wife kind of went around picking up bits of plastic and taking it out of the sea. And it would appear to be quite a simple thing. There's plastic in the seas. There's too much mm. to, to reclaim some of that plastic and use it. It's just taking it out of the sea, right? So what, what's, what are the complicating mm. factors? Well, the complicated factors is that going from, from picking up, like you say, a piece of plastic or a product of plastic, a bottle or bag, something, and then from that moment and then until you are in the other end where you have a new product that is made of, of that so that you are kind of getting this circular, uh, circular motion in place where you're reusing the plastic that you have already uh, used one time, uh, it takes a lot. You cannot simply... Um, and I'm not a plastic processing expert, but I do have a, a little bit of, 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 of knowledge about the area, of course, and since we are working with recycling partners in VC Project. You know, getting from, from, from point A where you have something that's been lying out in the water and is contaminated by dirt and, and other like organic residue until you have a, a plastic product that's clean enough that you can use it again for maybe body lotion or whatever mm. it, it needs to contain uh, detergent or anything. It's just quite a, it's the costly process and it's also a, a process that involves a lot of steps. Um, and we are not, uh, a we are not a recycling processor, but we are a plastic collection uh, company. And the thing is that not only do you need to be able to, uh, to, to recycle the plastic, but people also want to make sure that if you write on your product that it's made out of plastic coming from a specific place in our case uh, the ocean or the rivers people want to know okay so how did you actually document that it's coming from there and it's not made from basically new plastic or something like this so just the whole control aspect the documentation aspect of this supply chain which there is which is which is in such high demand today because people uh demand that you know if you come out as a company and you say we are doing this then you have to be able to show how you've done it um, and that's uh, just to keep, to keep trying to keep it short is, is what we do. And just from, from our end of the table where we take the plastic, our collectors pick it up in the ocean and in the rivers. Then they go in with their boats, they sort the plastic, they store it. We come and transport it to our sorting station. We weigh it, all these things. Just this relatively smaller part of the whole process demands so high quality of control uh, so, uh, to, to ensure that you can actually document what you are doing. So, so I think this is really interesting because, so I, I, I run, I, I have reclaimed recycled running shirts. Um, um, I, I hadn't realized, to be perfectly honest with you, how bad synthetics were until a couple of years ago and then started trying to find kind of reclaimed recycled um, plastic um garments to wear and they do say where they come from um but again to my story of the maldives we were picking up plastic that had come from all over the world there was stuff with chinese writing there was stuff that looked oh. to me like it might be um hindu perhaps so so maybe or hindi rather so maybe maybe something from india then there was stuff with what looks like it might have been english or french it may have come from africa you, you got no idea this plastic's just floating around so how do you authenticate where that plastic has come from? How can you prove to someone, should they ask, that that plastic is from a particular part of the ocean when this stuff's just floating around and could have come from anywhere? Yeah, 
that's uh, that's uh, that's the whole predicament. Um, well, when we started out, we knew that that was going to be like the main thing that we needed to be able to prove, and we wanted. And the only thing you can really do that today is, of course, to make sure that you are um, uh, applying your processes to to high, uh, like globally acclaimed standards. And we are one of uh, one of I think is. Yeah, we are the second organization in the world uh, to be uh, certified against uh, a certification called, it has a very uh, not so uh, easy name, but it's called a chain of custody certification for plastic collected in the hydrosphere. It's a DNV industry uh, certification. And what it basically means is that we can document where the plastic we are collecting is coming from. And to get back to your question, the way that we have even been able to uh, acquire this certification, especially being such a young company as we are, was that we uh, went the digital way from the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, we knew that we were going to be working in a way that needed to be scalable. We wanted to work with these communities in Indonesia. They are coming from all sorts of areas. We have uh, locations in different areas of Jakarta covering a quite big uh, area so it's not like we have one little facility where everything is going on they're sailing out into the harbor into rivers they're sailing around and what they do is that we um we apply them with a, a an app in a smartphone that they use it's a, a tracking system that we have had developed that they can use in their daily or not they can use that they have to use in their daily work whether, whether they collect plastic and to take it a little bit step by step what they do is that they will go out in the morning to, to collect plastic in their boats and they will open the app, they will turn it on and it will automatically lock in their GPS coordinations so that we afterwards digitally can follow them on our, on our, in our system and see, okay, so you were actually in this area and this river, this part of the ocean uh, close to, the, to, to Jakarta. And then this app will follow their their, their work. Uh, it will go. It will when they go back to 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 shore later in the day, and they start to sort the plastic and give it a batch number, so like a tag, so we can identify it. This will be registered in the application. They will also register it when they store the plastic. Again, then they will weigh the plastic once a week. This will be registered in the application. We will come with our trucks once a week, take all this plastic from the different collectors in this specific location, take it to our sorting facility in central Jakarta, where we again will, will weigh the plastic and register this weight. Um, and all of this data is accumulated in blockchain, meaning that every time an entry point from either our collectors or our sorting station employees or one of our managers is entered into the blockchain, it is there and we cannot afterwards go in and, and, and sort of make uh, any sort of amendments to it or change anything. So once it's, it's stored in the blockchain, it's visible what has been going on. Um, because every time you make a change, a new chain in the block will be added. So you will be able to track the process. So that was... No, that yeah. So that was just the the whole. Um, that was the only way we could even get a certification this uh, rigorous, uh, being such a young company. So it's that it's that provenance piece in the same way that if you were taking a diamond out of a mine and you wanted to prove where a piece of jewellery had come from, or you wanted to prove um, provenance of a piece of art in the way that people are beginning to use blockchain in those examples, it's, it's exactly the same. 
but to, to prove where that plastic has come from, what that chain is, so that you can turn around to those companies that are employing you to take plastics out of the, of the ocean and, and give them that peace of mind. Yes, that's uh, that's exactly what we do. And we have all this data available. So we use it, of course, both to document externally, but also internally as a quality insurance tool for us uh, to be to be able to constantly improve our 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 collection practices and how we work uh, in in the application as well. They there it uses a lot of photo documentation as well. So the collector, when he's out in sea, he will take a picture. Uh, it will lock his GPS coordinates down and he will take a picture. This is the area where I'm going to collect the plastic and mm. and and I mean it's, a, it's first and foremost of course it's a, it's a quality and documentation tool but it also um, since me and some of our data analysts are sitting and, and looking at these pictures every day you really get a sense of how in, immense the problem is because we get hundreds of photos every day showing water that is completely filled with plastic, uh, all sorts of plastic product, products. So um, it's also just, yeah, that, is, that in itself is, is quite interesting. Here's, here's a random question then. As I said, I, I, I buy running vests that are made from reclaimed ocean plastics. And I buy it as a consumer and I think, oh, I'm doing a good thing. And maybe I stop there mm. and I don't apply the same thought process around my ethical choices as I might with other garment garments of clothing. Mm. Whereas I might question the factory conditions of workers with other pieces of items that I'm buying. I just kind of go, I've bought something that's made from re recycled plastic. I'm doing good. And yet you say there you've got tranches of ocean where there's, there's so much plastic. I can't imagine these are wonderful working conditions and yet the people the, the the locals they're obviously doing something that they feel is really meaningful and impactful and is clearing up their environment how can people i'm sure that they are but how can people be be rest assured that the working environment is good that these people are getting paid a fair deal that that that, that these that there is kind of a fair trade aspect to it um that, that underpins the whole industry Mm, that's a really fair question. But just as with any other kind of, of, of work, you say, uh, as soon as, as, as we're talking any sorts of certifications from, from such an accredit, uh, accredited uh, assurance body as DNB, then of course they, they, are, they are checking as well that we are paying fair compensation for the work that we do, uh, so, or for the work that the collectors are doing. So, so this is part of, uh, this is part of the, the standard we are held to, just as with any other sorts of, 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 uh, of claim you will find out there for different kinds of uh, of uh, assurances uh, and we work really closely with uh, with these people to ensure that that we can create an, uh, a work environment that uh, that is uh, that is uh, of course uh, like uh, that is interesting for them to be part of uh, and one thing I found was that it's 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 been quite interesting to to learn we have this we sort of sometimes have this uh, preconditioned notion here in the West that as soon as we are talking about poorer communities, we're also talking about less capable communities. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Um, these people, of course, are living in an environment that is very um, foreign to us because uh, just, I mean, I'm sure it's the same in the UK, but here in Denmark, we have, you know, we pay our taxes and then, uh, uh, you know, the garbage trucks will come and take away all of our waste. I think actually, mm -hmm. unfortunately, I think Denmark are, hel are holding a very, very uh, bad first place and having the most waste produced per person, actually something like this. Um, so we are in no way doing really well with our waste, but we just have a system that can manage it. So these people don't have the same privilege. Um, 
they live by these rivers. And in, if you live in a poor area where maybe a garbage truck does not come every Tuesday or Wednesday and pick up your, your trash, you're kind of left with, the, with no possibilities in terms of getting rid of it. And they produce waste just as we are, just much less, of course. So a lot of the waste will end up in the rivers because that's one way of kind of out of sight, out of mind, because the, the river will take, you know, it has a stream, so it flows, so it will take away the waste. So that's why we find all this uh, this waste in, in, in the ocean. And what we saw was that, of course, these people, they don't like that approach. It's not like it's not that it's not like they think that that is a great solution. They just didn't really have any other. So when we approached them and said, OK, we would actually like to try to do something about this problem, but we will not be able to do it on our own. We need your help. We need your expertise on work, like uh, pretty much working on the water, all these things. Um, they were, they were, of course, very keen on it. It was, a, it was an interesting job opportunity for them. And then we thought we, we, we presented this app to them that they had to use. And, and I can say quite honestly that I was a little worried about how will this work? Like, how can, how will they be able to maneuver this? And they just completely proved me, like proved all of my worries wrong from the get-go, because of course they could. And and what was actually quite interesting to hear from them was that it actually became kind of a source of, of pride because it was a way of getting some sort of an education that didn't just see themselves as managing waste because they were using this app and because they could actually really track what they were doing, they felt like they were actually doing an impact. They could document that they not only were they, of course, making money uh, and providing for themselves and their families, but they could actually document the work that they were doing as well. So that was, uh, that was very positive to, to learn. Look, I think it's um, an amazing project and story. And uh, thank you for taking some time to, to talk a little bit about it. Um, with me today if someone is interested in finding out more about Reese project how best would they do that well uh, we have of course our web page but i think the the most interesting ways to engage with us is definitely to to find us on social media on instagram on facebook on if you're a company or a professional on linkedin as well search for Reese project where we put up uh, all sorts of uh, information and and daily fun facts from the work that we're doing well, look, thank you again and you. Uh, uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you, you too. Amber, for some reason, I'm probably totally wrong here. This this is going to show up how well or little, probably little, I know you. I have a feeling that you've been to some fairly tropical places. Um, I have, kind, yeah, kind of. Actually, we've you've been to like Southeast Asia, right? In places like I that. I have, yeah, 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 I have. Yeah. That's yeah. yeah. Do you know what? I don't know why I questioned that because that is quite. That is very tropical, in fact. And I actually. Was oh yeah, in, totally. I was in. Um, I was in Copenhagen uh, a couple of weeks ago. Oh, really? Nice so I'm very jealous. Yeah. Well, I've not been to Copenhagen, so. Very nice. Very nice. Probably not the place where plastic in the sea is going to necessarily feel like an immediate concern, but unfortunately, in tropical places, it is right. Mm, yeah, definitely. But then I also find that. Well, this is, again, I'm kind of bringing this back to sort of to the UK. And obviously, this is much more on like a wider kind of, you know, bigger sort of issue and, and different places. But I think with the summer coming, this is mm. only going to get worse. In what way? Well, you think like when obviously, I think it's last year, maybe a couple of years ago, when there was all the pictures come out from Bournemouth Beach. 
And like I say, this is keeping it very sort of like on a smaller scale. And I know this is obviously mm. targeting like a much bigger issue. But like when it gets nice weather, people go to the beaches, people go out and about, they have picnics, they have barbecues, and then they just leave all their rubbish everywhere. So yeah. I just think with the nice weather, like surely this is only going to get worse. Well, it's it's inexcusable, really. Like how people are people here are very familiar with the issues around single use plastics. There is mm. there is no need to be exacerbating the issue any more than we already are. And I don't know about you, but you know when I talked about the fact that um, we're in the Maldives and it was pristine, it was achingly beautiful. I'll, I'll be perfectly honest. My wife and I discussed the fact that holiday has kind of ruined other holidays for us. <laughs> Set the benchmark now, hasn't it? Ah, it's, yeah. it's just like, so I've been to Mauritius twice. Mauritius is beautiful, right? The Maldives, when you go back to Mauritius, makes Mauritius look almost, got to pick my words, choose my words carefully here because it is, it, is, it is a beautiful <laughs> place to go on holiday, right? But it almost makes it look dull. Really? Wow. Well, the, the, water, in, the water in the Maldives was something else. It was like you walk along a jetty and look at a boat, like just at the end of the jetty, and it looks like it's shimmering in midair. The oh, water I is that love clear. it when it's like that. It's I just insane. Like, that. like, like genuinely eye-popping color, technicolor, insane beauty. Um, so then, then the the jarring kind of moment of where the fuck has all this plastic come from after mm. that storm on the last night when you're in this beautiful place that you can't imagine ever being is just weird. Yeah, that's very true, actually. And I think I've had kind of similar experiences when I've been to, like, Bali. Like, it's just, you know, it's such a beautiful place. You'd expect it to be. I don't know why, but you just wouldn't expect to see loads and loads of rubbish there. Like, of course, obviously, people mm. litter all over the place and it happens you know, everywhere. It's not exclusive to just set areas. But when it does happen to somewhere that's so beautiful and it's so, like, you just wouldn't expect it, it's almost more shocking. Like, I maybe yeah. we've become more, like, acclimatised to it and we've just kind of accepted that we see a lot of litter about. But when you see it in somewhere where you wouldn't expect it, it almost is, like, more shocking and it's just like, that, that shouldn't be here. Like, you yeah. know, this plastic. You, you see how, we, we're t- like, the... the you're right. Like we shouldn't take it for granted. Like I, I'm very lucky to live in the countryside. I go for walks in the morning through the countryside. It's really beautiful here in a very different way, but it is, it's very beautiful. And there's no excuse to be making a mess of, of, of the countryside in England. Mm. Um, you know, it's a green and pleasant land. Um, but when you go to somewhere that you're not used to and you go there and it's like, this is paradise. Yeah. And then you see it, it's like, what the hell are we doing? Yeah. And it's like, Again, it's, it's, I mean, it shouldn't just be like we've accepted it or come to accept it because we do it so often. But like when you see it in such beautiful places, you're like, wow, we really are just destroying everything. Do you know what I mean? Like, I know it sounds like yeah. super dramatic, but like just where, yeah, you just look at these amazing places, like you say, like beautiful, clear water, like pristine beaches. Like, and then obviously when there is litter, it's just like, oh man, like we just can't have nice things, can we? Because we just make them, we just, just, yeah. Just yeah. make them not so nice, basically. And look, I've 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 read about various different projects taking plastic out of the ocean, and it's always been like, yes, you know, and autonomous robots kind of mopping it up and all the bit all the bits and pieces. But I love that actually this is almost like a 
lower tech solution of just simply let's employ locals who care about their community, mm-hmm. but then implying blockchain to make sure that it's it's a fair process. And and I admit that when I buy like recycled from plastic trainers and clothes, I've never really thought about how it's actually made. Mm-hmm. That's that has never crossed my mind. I have genuinely just gone, I'm doing a good thing. And then thought process over. Yeah, that's so true. I think I'm the same. Like it's sometimes, again, this sounds really incredibly selfish, but it's almost that thing of like, you know, I'm doing a good thing or, you know, it makes you feel good, but you don't actually then like look into the reasons or like, you know, kind of the stuff that's going on behind the scenes. And then when you do that and you sort of say like, actually, like, how has this been made? What's been the process? Like when she started to break that down and to say more about like their business and how they work and and, and yeah, it just makes you think like, wow, there's so much that goes into this. Like, it's actually really, really interesting. And the fact that it's it's employment for those communities, which unfortunately is kind of sustainable because of the, because of the amount of plastic. Well, that's good um, that it's employment. And also mm-hmm. because those people will really care. Like, I can't imagine how awful it must be if you're from Indonesia and... I've not been to Indonesia, but you know everyone talks. Is it is it the is it the Golden Triangle? Of I um, think there's re, I think there's there's like a tri or something like that. There's a triangle of reefs or islands where it's supposed to be the best reefs in the world for diving. Okay, didn't know that. Um, I'm sure Indonesia is like the absolute diving mecca of the world, mm. and therefore tourism is obviously really important to places like that. And then. Tourism is, is tourism is going to be harmed, and also, and as a point I was trying to make, you know, it's just those people's home. It must be heartbreaking. Mm. Um, so yeah, anything that gives them the opportunity to make sure that tourism is is kept alive in a really good way, um, and that it's there for future generations. And you know how we talk about the fact that it's like make sure it's there for future generations. Yeah. I was stood on a jetty in the Maldives next to a French. Um, lady in I would guess her late 50s to early 60s and I was saying to her isn't this place stunning and she said yes but I was here 30 years ago and you wouldn't believe how much more stunning it was oh really wow that's... because so much of the coral had died and, and was bleached oh my and God. to me it looked incredible but to her she was just like it, it's not what it was that's mad isn't it because I know, like you say, we're always thinking like one step ahead of us, but then obviously people who have seen it and seen the kind of the evolution or like the changes and stuff, like they must be thinking like, wow, like if it continues to go and get worse and we continue to damage it, like what's it going to be like in another 30 years? And that's yeah. kind of the worrying point where you get to, it's like, wow, like this could not even be here. Oh my goodness. That's really strange that you said that actually, because I've never thought of it in that way. I think always just think of like what next what next and looking forward but never actually thought to think backwards and what it could have potentially looked like before us yeah yeah no i you i i just kind of turned up and went wow it's amazing and then and yeah she was like no 30 years ago it was a lot more colorful and there was a lot more of it mm, that's such a yeah that's very sad actually like when you think yeah. Of it like that yeah we will take a break We've got one more interview. We've talked about two solutions. The final interview after the break is all about ways to finance some of these sustainable projects and what investors might be looking for and why they might invest. So that's coming up afterwards. It's an interview with Olivia. Um, So stick with us. And uh, Amber, thank you very much for your time today. No worries. Thanks, Dave. 
A couple of years ago, Michael and Jacob, two friends from London, were both thinking about their consumption and sustainability as a whole. Michael, a professional footballer at the time, realised he had no options when it came to sustainable sportswear. Overconsumption and underuse was all too common. Hilo was born, a sportswear brand fighting for the planet by changing mindsets. They started with a running shoe made with seven natural materials, and the shoe can be recycled at the end of its life. As a company, they've offset their carbon to beyond zero, making them carbon negative. You can find out more about Hilo and support their mission at hiloathletics.com. That's H-Y-L-O. We support the Hilo movement. So this morning, I'm chatting to Liv. Liv, you're currently out in Switzerland uh, for the month, which is lovely. Not at all jealous of that. (laughs) How are you this morning? I'm very well, thank you. I'm feeling very lucky that technology enables me to work remotely with a view of the mountains, so uh, I can't complain. We're here to talk to you about your role as CEO and co-founder of Seed Tribe. Before we get into anything else, do you want to tell us a little bit about Seed Tribe and, and what you do? Sure, of course. Thanks for having me. Um, so Seed Tribe is a platform that connects impactful entrepreneurs with angel investors. Um, so quite simply, how do we drive business as a force for good? Um, and how can we enable entrepreneurs who are working in this space to scale their business through uh, angel investment, but also increasingly look at other forms of financing for them to help them scale appropriately? And how did how did that business come about? Because obviously co-founder, what, what's the origins of it? So it's actually a spin-off of another organization called the Angel Investment Network, which is also a matchmaking platform where our entrepreneurs um, uh, uh, upload a business pitch online um, and uh, connect with angel investors through um, algorithms. Um, and I came in four years ago to launch the uh sister uh, spin-off business Sea tribe um and it was interesting because at the time impact investment was very very niche um and so we decided to uh separate the two platforms so that i could really focus on building this segment which people didn't really understand people wondered if it was philanthropy um you know what it really looked like What's interesting now at this point in the evolution is we're looking to probably merge the two platforms because wonderfully impact is becoming a lot more mainstream um, and as in- an increasing number of investors actually actively want to be involved in that space. We're finding that a lot of investors from the parent platform actually want to become more involved. So wonderfully, this probably might become a two-in-one uh, platform um, so that we can enable anyone to look at impact investment not just those who are proactively um seeking it in the first place this might sound like a really dumb question given the focus on climate change and impact in investment and and organizations with purpose but why why is that trend there why is there so much more interest because actually in an uncertain world which is certainly what we we have in front of us at the moment investment tends to go back to safer bets and and slightly perhaps less ambitious projects? It's a very good question. 
Um, yes, and, and and that does happen for, for people, uh, but you also have people uh, reacting in the exact opposite way. Um, and as they say, never let a good crisis go to waste. Um, and this is actually, you know, what is happening in terms of if you look from a climate perspective, when we have increasing floods and fires, then we had COVID, which really sharpened people's senses in terms of understanding that mental health is really important and, you know, what our, where we put our values and where we spend our time and money has actually become of utmost importance when we were brought down to the sort of bare minimum. And um, now, of course, we're talking at a time when Russia and Ukraine are at war um, and there's now a fight for uh, gas and, and access to energy. And so, again, there's a whole sort of perfect storm that unfortunately keeps uh, brewing increasingly loudly from all areas, some more unexpected than others, um, which does actually incentivize a huge amount of people. I'd say it's still a minority, but a, a growing significant minority of people who actually realize that we need to do things differently. Um, and we may not get the same short-term immediate returns, but that is also part of the reason why we are in this mess financially. Um, investors looking at um, you know short-term returns, whereas actually, if you can look at uh, investment as more patient, long-term capital, which is why actually pension funds are very well placed for this, um, you can actually look to a brighter, longer-term horizon. Um, so it does take a little longer to to build. But ultimately, with this changing world, people are realizing that it's it's not safe to do the same investments as we've always done because they're crashing all over the place. So why not try and invest in something that has a better future? How how does that change the dynamic of the of the of the startup of the of that growth stage? Because we're kind of used to raise capital growth round, raise capital growth, and and everything about getting users on board. You know whether or not it's turning profit just growth generally speaking and that is quite short-termist so what you're saying there is contrary to i suppose the last decade's worth of narrative around the startup community absolutely and this is this is a, a big mission that i'm on i have a grand plan of uh, influencing policy change um my belief is that we need to incentivize investors and entrepreneurs to be rewarded for the positive social and environmental impact that they do have on the world you are starting to find interesting um, instruments that are working towards that you have organizations that offer um revenue-based repayment models. So they will offer uh, organizations debt, which they only need to repay um, upon achievement of particular uh, revenue, but linked to the um, impact that they have uh, on the world as well. Um, you have um, increasing social financing, which does look at longer term returns. Um, so just to be clear, we absolutely still are looking at generating a profit or certainly generating more revenue than one spends because at the end of the day we need money in order to pay the bills it's just that um we uh, are, are encouraging investors to look firstly at the purpose that they want to achieve and make sure that business models are aligned financially to um uh, be profitable based on the positive 
impact. And therefore, the profit naturally flows as a result of the impact. So it's about changing the narrative, flipping it on its head and looking first at the ultimate purpose being what is the social and environmental good I'm doing? And then looking at the business model and saying, does this business model make financial sense? So it is very, very different to the whole approach that we have at the moment. And, you know, we're currently systemically and culturally based our perspectives on, uh, you know, based on models on Silicon Valley. When I say systemically, I'm talking about uh, investment structures like SEIS and EIS, which are uh, incredibly uh, attractive tax investments tax incentives for investors um, who get rewarded uh, or whose risk gets reduced um, if the company they invest in either goes boom or goes bust in a very Silicon Valley uh, model, but they lose their tax incentive if the company uh, makes a profit along the way and pays dividends. Um, so systemically, that is a challenge. Culturally, we also believe that we are only a success if we're going to be the next unicorn, if we've raised, you know, X amount of millions, if we've gone through the VC route, etc. So there is also a sort of cultural attachment to uh, our definition of success, which is modelled on Silicon Valley. So it is a very, very different framework that we are looking at systemically and culturally. It is still work in progress. Um, but my belief is that actually entrepreneurs and investors in the early startup space are the ones who have the power to be innovative in how they look at things differently. Um, I do also work at the Department for International Trade and have an insight into government. And the more I do, I'll be honest, the more I realise that the true change is going to come from grassroots in the sense of you know, in this case, business uh, and investors. And once we can demonstrate to government that there are successful models that actually work for profit, people and planet, then that's the perfect time to change policy because we can go with proven examples of how it actually works without, um, you know, having sort of quickly thrown in policies that might have unintended consequences. We can't expect government to know what happens at that, um, you know, on, on the ground. That's not what uh, government does. They don't run businesses. Uh, but if we present them with well thought out policies that actually make sense in on the ground, that is where true change can happen. So it's a very exciting space for entrepreneurs and, in, and investors to be innovative and really, really change the game. If we step away a little bit from, I suppose, the policies and, and the investment um, for a second and just think about the problems that people are trying to solve I've always kind of found that it it must be challenging to know what's a good idea and what's not like you know if you are investing in a business um, you tend to invest in a business where you understand the target market and you kind of go right here's here's, here's some is product market fit that makes sense and i remember watching the Earthshot awards towards the end of last year and they had so many different categories and even within the categories the solutions that people were trying to provide to you know to to um fix challenges that we face and the way that technology could be implemented was so variable and so flexible and it must be really hard to know with such an intangible with such a um a, a new area is their product market fit and we're not talking about consumer tech at the same time. So that becomes even more opaque. How, how do you know what's a good investment? 
That's a, such a good question. Um, and and it's a very hard question to answer. Um, I love that you mentioned that it's not consumer face facing technology. And what I mean by that is one of the key one of my key beliefs is that the quickest way we can accelerate change is uh, through systemic change. And that is looking at B2B solutions, which therefore are very difficult to understand. Now you can have investors who are specialized in a particular space and maybe not from the impact perspective, but from the other from the other perspective, whether you're looking at, you know, energy, uh, food production, construction, etc. You might actually specifically come from the sort of incumbents of the sort of uh, old world, as it were. And use your experience in the challenges that you found in order to invest in businesses that actually address the challenges that you've lived through. So in certain ways, you know, the ideal investor and the ideal way to judge a company is still looking at a sector that you know, but you probably are the type of person who is more specialized in a particular industry. Ultimately, when you look at impact, whether it's sort of climate or, or social, um, or ideally the both both of them intertwined they are just an ethical lens on the you know the current uh, industries that we're looking at so the same continues to apply firstly you know does the business model make sense and is it a market that you know now you can also base it on passion you know if you look at there's incredible technology out there using big data to detect the early signs of cancer, for example. Um, and in certain ways, you know, you could also maybe take a little bit more of a punt, whereby it's something that you're very, very passionate about because you might have a lived experience personally or through family or friends. Um, and again, you know, you just need to ask questions. You know, you can ask the right questions with regards to the business model. There are certain sort of similar principles that apply to the rest of to, to other forms of investment in terms of looking at the founder, does the team have the right makeup? Do you believe in them? Um, uh, you know, it, does it feel like a product market fit? You could also do research around that. There are a lot of specialists that you can ask. So I receive a lot of pitches and it, it spans the whole sector, se spectrum of all industries. So I also often don't know, but then I just call up people um, who are specialized in that particular industry and ask for their perspective as well. You know, I don't know anything about construction. I now know that cement is one of the biggest polluters. So I now realize that the cement, uh, efficient cement production is huge market, but uh, it's not something I knew before. And now I feel it's a really important uh, area to, to address. So ask around, ask the specialists and, and see what they say. Um, as well as using your the, the you know similar criteria to you would have to what you would have done in in other investments. I know that obviously there is um, appetite from government to hmm, <laughs> certainly there's appetite to government from government to be seen to be acting on this. <laughs> How much action goes on? Look, we're looking at the situation now with regards to realizing just how. Uh, little has been done to wean countries off natural gas and and so on and and what uh, political fallout there might be from that. But there's certainly um, there's certainly that appetite to be seen to be doing stuff from a policy point of view. How much impact do you think society has on the sector that you're working in and driving that forward? Is it you know, there's there's a lot of noise. There can be lots of protests. There can be very visu visual things. Obviously, people like Greta Thunberg have had um, 
a huge cultural impact, but has that translated to real action, real investment, real ideas going forward? I think every single um, sector of society, as it were, is completely intertwined, uh, inextricably so, in the in the sense that one one feeds into the other, and you cannot have any parties acting uh, independently. What I mean by that is ultimately every single one of us wears multiple hats. We're all citizens, some kind of family member, friend, uh, potentially employee or business owner, uh, voter, consumer. So we can each wear a whole number of, should do wear a number of different hats. And we should think about our impact on society with each of the different hats that we wear. Now, a politician is also a citizen and a consumer um, and an employee, actually, an employee of the of the people. Uh, politicians tend to bring out policies often time based on what popular vote uh, they can have. So the more we have citizen uh, activism, the more incentive there is for governments to adapt policies accordingly. Um, equally, the more consumer uh, or citizen, let's call it, action there is, no, let's call it consumer in this case, the more businesses might act um, according to what people want. So the UK is particularly uh, well-placed for sustainable products. That's because British citizens feel really strongly about uh, increasingly buying sustainable, ethically um, sourced products. And therefore, businesses realize that there's a market for this. Um, and then, you know, that also starts to sort of uh, look at how, how government um, embeds these kinds of uh, policies to incentivize more business in that sense. So I would say, you know, from a from an individual perspective, where both your citizen, uh, that is your activism voice, and your consumer, that is where you put your money, which is one of the biggest votes, um, use that, use those hats because they are extremely powerful in influencing how business and policy work to then impact um, larger scale systemic change. But it does start with, with the individual. Um, influencing other groups so look as a last piece um you mentioned government uh, earlier on in the interview and you work for uh, with the department of international trade in a part-time capacity as a as a global entrepreneur program deal maker um i suppose the question i wanted to ask is if you're trying to attract people to the uk now um how are we going about doing that because you might kind of argue oh well the startup community embracing distributed working we don't necessarily need people to be in london in our in our cities um you know in northern england or scotland or wherever it might be they can they can be in estonia they can be in india do you think that's true or do you think it's important that we get people on the ground in the uk it's a very good question. So, um, and, and something I was very interested in as I started my government role uh, in the middle of lockdown, so I thought it would be quite a challenge. What's interesting is that there's a number of reasons why it is actually really helpful to be here physically in person. And of course, I can only talk about the perspective of the UK, but I get inundated by requests from entrepreneurs all over the world, whether it's Europe or much further afield, um, who are desperate to move to the UK in order to grow their business. Firstly, there's there's um, 
there's the infrastructure. So quite simply, it's extremely easy to set up a business here. Um, you know, the, the sort of bureaucracy and uh, admin is just really, really slick in the UK, more so than any other country that I've experienced. And that is that is something to be said. Um, you know, it's, it takes minutes to set up a business bank account, et cetera, et cetera. So one of them is that element. Then there's the actual, uh, there are, you know, I was sort of bemoaning the tax incentives earlier. They are still extremely helpful in encouraging a healthy uh, entrepreneurial ecosystem. And that attracts a lot of uh, investors who want to invest into the startup world. And therefore, that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy of, you know, more investors that enables more entrepreneurs to start up and the entrepreneurs then build more ecosystems. And ultimately, yes, you could meet online, but I think we've all realized that there's also so much value in physical um, meetings that you can have. And, and there's an extra sort of magic and serendipity that you gain uh, through through in-person meetings. I'd also say there's a lot of actual sort of um, uh, networks that people can tap into geographically that are really helpful. And actually, if you're building, you know, infrastructure for uh, electric vehicles to plug into or, you know, building uh, systems for renewable energy, battery storage, etc., you do need to be on the ground. You actually need to look at the whole, uh, you know, infrastructure and land uh, and opportunities available here. So um, I was also surprised. I sort of thought that it would actually be a lot easier to run distributed businesses. And while it is, I think having a headquarter in the UK makes it a lot easier to grow your business. Um, and um, as I was mentioning earlier about the sort of perfect storm of, of challenges, I think one thing the UK has done well is uh, really put them, use the citizen passion for sustainability and use that as a policy to really drive the transition to net zero um, agenda which essentially just attracts more entrepreneurs uh, to build businesses from here and then and then scale them internationally to address our growing climate change <laughs> challenges in, in every way. Well, look, it's been a pleasure to speak to you. Um, I hope that the rest of your time in Switzerland uh, is successful and goes well. Um, I understand that it's not snowing at the moment, which is probably good because it's less of a distraction or maybe it's just started snowing. So maybe you'll get some skiing. Who knows? But uh, I really appreciate you giving up some time this morning. Thank you so much for having me. 